This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Chipotle says no one has gotten E. coli at its restaurant since November, though it's facing several lawsuits over outbreaks that sicken dozens of people. The company plans to start a marketing push in the coming weeks to win back customers lost since the first outbreak in the fall. It seems the beleaguered Denver-based company needs more than just a marketing campaign, according to our next guest, Bill Zucker. He's an expert in crisis communications at the firm Ketchum in Chicago, where he's a partner. He advises food companies on safety and quality issues. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. Good morning, Nathan. So Chipotle announced this week that it will close every single store on February 8th to talk about E. coli with its employees. What are your initial thoughts on this? Yeah, well, we, we've heard this before, and, and it's been done successfully. Starbucks did this uh, in 2008 um, for a much different purpose. You may recall they, they closed for almost four hours um, as, as sort of a surprise around the country, and they did it to retrain their baristas in the, in the art of making espresso. Um, it, it was a success for them. They, they, they were battling a perception problem that their coffee taste had declined, uh, and so by doing the training, presumably they, they had the baristas make more quality espresso. Um, and it, it also um, sent a message to all of us who are customers of Starbucks. It said, hey, we're changing, and so we'll get better. And, you know, they, they got um, some, some good news coverage out of that, in part because it was a surprise and in part because, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was unusual that they did it. But I think this is a different situation uh, with Chipotle because this is about food safety instead of about quality and taste. And yeah. so, uh, you know, the difference here is there's an expectation that some of this training would have already happened. Um, and there's probably a higher risk here because, uh, you know, the training becomes a point in time. They're saying February 8th is a, is a moment in time. And if later in February there are additional issues, uh, it, it will make it that much more difficult for them because, of course, they've said, you know, we had this moment in time, we retrained everyone, uh, it's going to be good moving forward. And, th- and then if it's not, it, it becomes that much more difficult to recover from. So it's a risk. In terms of food safety, has there been an incident where another company has dealt with something like this really well? Well, I, I think a lot of companies deal with this really well, and th- th- there's there's some fairly common things that they do. So, uh, you know, the, the, the first is acting quickly, um, getting out in front of the problem, trying to fix the problem both short-term and long-term as, as swiftly as possible, um, and then communicating with equal speed and not over-promising, um, you know, owning any mistakes, uh, making sure that you are careful to talk about making things safer, but not trying to suggest you know, we will be the safest, um, and, you know, rather talking about getting as close to 100% safety as possible and letting people know how you're doing it. But, but usually the companies that have been successful uh, in those cases ha- have also been the ones who are patient and who have recognized you need time. Uh, p- people need time. There, there's there's going to be a, a segment of any company's consumer group that needs time to get the confidence to go back. And, and what you don't want to do is rush that. I'm reminded of Taco Bell, and, and, and I believe Jimmy John's had issues back in the, the early 2000s. Are, are those examples of where things went right, where, where they took the right steps? I think what those are both examples of is, is where um, you, you know that you can recover. So any company that's going through this can look uh, to those two companies and say, well, they had high-profile um, food safety questions uh, you know, related to pathogens, uh, and uh, at the time it seemed... Um, you know, insurmountable, and yet, um, uh, you know, in, in the case of one month later and, and maybe several months in the case of Taco Bell, 
um, you know, they were able to recover. And that's because, they, you know, they did what they needed to do to fix the issues. But more importantly, they, they allowed for enough time for people to get over that memory of that company's name in the same paragraph as E. coli or illness or sickness. And Chipotle says it has put in new safety measures for food like washing produce at a central kitchen, and they're going to do more. But in addition to the E. coli outbreak, neurovirus was tied to a Chipotle restaurant in Boston, and the company is under federal investigation for cases of neurovirus in California. On top of that, the cause of the E. coli outbreak is, is still unknown. I imagine that really makes their job tougher uh, to get that consumer back in for, for their burritos. Yeah, it, it certainly makes it tougher. I, you know, keep in mind with E. coli, it, it's, it's not uncommon that we don't end up knowing the exact cause. And, and I think what, you know, what you're hearing in this case and in many cases is that um, you know, if they're not able to find that common element and trace it back, um, at some point, the, you know, the food goes away, you can't figure out exactly where it came from. And that can always be more unsettling for consumers. I, I think the biggest challenge that they're facing, though, is when you have multiple things happen at the same time, even though they are technically unrelated, the consumer doesn't always believe that that's unrelated. And so in this case, uh, you know, norovirus and E. coli are very different. Um, they're both prevented with really strong food safety practices. Uh, the timing makes this a lot more difficult for recovery. What about the ability of people to talk instantly about food and their restaurant experiences on Facebook, Twitter? Of course, you know, Yelp. Is social media a space where the company can get through to people? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think when, when you look at social and digital media for companies, it, it's, it's sort of a blessing and a curse. So the, the curse is uh, that unlike 10 years ago, if you were in a situation like this, um, uh, you know, a, a brand is out there, conversations can easily explode uh, and, and, and can get out of control. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, companies had time to plot out their next moves. They could control the conversation a little more uh, and they could control the timing. Now, on the flip side, the, the blessing of social and digital media for companies is that they can instantly understand the mindset of the consumers. There's a lot of ways to listen and aggregate what consumers are doing or saying. And so a company going through this ought to be able to do that that research and very quickly know what concerns people have so that they can address those concerns. They can see what the most searched queries online are and make sure that they're addressing those. And then what we've learned through a lot of research at Ketchum that we've done on food evangelists, which is the consumers were most active communicating about their concerns about food on social media and elsewhere, is that they want to know that the information is there and that they can find it. And so the digital era has allowed companies to make sure that they've got that information sitting somewhere, um, uh, you know, frequently asked questions, pictures, videos, um, and that it's searchable for the people who are interested in it, but maybe not blatantly out there for the, the amount of people who aren't interested and don't want to read that information. And so that, that's definitely something that companies can do now that they couldn't do 10 years ago. Chipotle, Bill, announced it would give away more free food at its restaurants. Is that really a way to draw people back? Boy, that's tough. I, you know, you, 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 hate for, um, you hate to send a message um, that would suggest uh, any, anything around desperation. And, and so that's why, you know, I, I think letting, letting time heal 
some of the wounds is really important. Time, time can do a lot more than almost anything else you do. Uh, it, it, on the one hand, there are probably some consumers who would take a, a giveaway as a, um, as a nice gesture and will appreciate it. And there's others who might look at that and say, wow, that seems a little desperate. Maybe there's something that, that I need to be concerned about. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned food evangelists and, and yeah. you know, Chipotle specifically, um, you know, their consumer base more than most is, is filled with these food evangelists who are people who communicate a lot, both positively and negatively, about how they feel. And these are not people who are likely to be interested in food giveaways as much as wanting to see what the progress is from a company, um, wanting to know what the actions are more than knowing what the words are, and wanting as much transparency as possible versus the vague statements that we sometimes get from companies. And so, uh, you know, because Chipotle is built more on those types of consumers, given the push that they've always had for food values and food integrity, they probably need to play to that even more than most companies do. Bill, thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me. You bet, Nathan. Bill Zucker is a partner at the PR firm Ketchum in Chicago, where he advises food companies on safety and quality issues. Hear more about what the Chipotle E. coli and neurovirus outbreaks mean for the safety of our food overall at CPRnews.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Good-looking people have all kinds of advantages, and that's according to a lot of research. More attention, more income, and as we learn now, better grades. A study out of Metro State University of Denver finds attractive women get higher marks than less attractive ones. Christina Peters co-wrote the study. She's an associate professor of economics at Metro and presented her findings earlier this month at the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We'll talk about how you figured this out in a minute, but what was the difference in grades between good-looking women and less good-looking ones? Um, So basically, we found that um, the most unattractive women, Uh so this would be like the bottom 11% of the distribution, least attractive women, um, earned grades that were slightly smaller than average-looking and more attractive women. And when I say slightly smaller, I'm saying about half the distance between an A- and a B plus. So not a huge difference, but still there, and it, and it was statistically significant. What about men? Was there a difference there? So initially, we did not find any difference for men in that first set of results. A- any thoughts on why there appears to be a double standard here? Um, you know, I think... When we got into our second set of results, the double standard kind of disappeared, and the effect ended up being for both men and women. Oh, I see. Um, but I guess if I had to hazard a guess, some of the other literature out there on the effects of appearance also shows that you know there is this double standard for women. Um, so, for instance, on the opposite end, um, you know, here we're talking about professors potentially discriminating against students, but on the opposite end, students um, also give. Um, more attractive professors, higher ratings. And that's particularly pronounced if you're a woman. So I think it's happening um, maybe against women more, um, not just in students and grades, but, you know, in all aspects of life, maybe we judge women by a harsher standard. And and how the heck do you set up a study like this? I mean, (laughs) how do you determine which students are good looking and which ones aren't? Uh So we were fortunate. We had, you know, we started with a set of um, grades, you know, final course grades um, that we had for a five-year period. Um, But we also got student ID pictures for that same period. So we had, you know, these headshots of students that they took for their IDs. And then we had 
um, anonymous, independent raiders, people unaffiliated with Metro, um, that looked at these pictures on a computer screen, you know, kind of like a, you know, hot or not yeah. type scenario. Which is a website um, that was, yeah. yeah. And they rated those pictures on a scale of 1 to 10 of attractiveness as they flashed through. How do you, you know, isn't the the beauty of a person in the eye of the beholder? I mean, did, did you find most of those who rated these ID cards were, were in agreement? Uh-huh. So we, you know, first of all, studies have shown, you know, despite what we think that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's actually usually not. Um, there's a surprising amount of consistency among um, individuals and among cultures about what we think is attractive. Um, you know, so we like to think beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but in many cases it's not. But what we did in our study to ensure consistency is each raider, when they started, the first 50 images that they saw were the same people. So, And then from there it differed. So based on that, we were able to ensure that there was consistency among the ratings. And there was a very high level of consistency in, you know, what each rater thought was considered was attractive and unattractive. And, and I, I think the question, could it be that better looking students are, are simply better students? Absolutely. So this that's where the, you know, to me, the cool part of our study was. Um, so finding that, you know, more attractive females earned higher grades wasn't what was surprising or necessarily interesting to us since we expected that. So what we did after that is we were able to look at students in both online and in-class courses. So like you said, you know, you know, more attractive students might be better um, in other, other ways that's correlated with attractiveness. Maybe the fact that you get up in the morning and put on makeup and have a good haircut that shows that you care about your appearance and you're motivated, that could carry over into your behavior in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the case, then those more attractive students should earn higher grades, both in the classroom, but also in online courses, even when their appearance isn't seen. Because really, it's due to these other characteristics that's correlated with their appearance. Explain that a bit more for me. Um, so, so, so we compare these students in online versus traditional courses. Okay. So if it's true, if the reason that being attractive gets you better grades it's just true discrimination that the professor is, you know, looking at the attractive student and saying, let's give them a higher grade. Then that's going to show up in class when the student is sitting in front of the professor and the professor knows what they look like. But it's not going to show up in an online course where the professor doesn't know. So they the didn't fare any like. better online in that sense. Um, yes. Yeah, so they so but, you know, like you said, if it's due to these other characteristics that the more attractive students are also more motivated um, or, you know, more driven, pay more attention to detail, then those things are going to show up in higher grades, both in online courses and in in-class courses. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Christina Peters. She co-wrote a study that finds that attractive women get higher marks than less attractive ones in, in academic courses. And I, I find it interesting. You're an economics professor. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to look into whether or not good looks affect what grades a person gets? So we were originally intrigued um, by this idea because, as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, there's a lot of literature out there in economics and psychology and sociology that shows that more attractive individuals have higher levels of success in many areas. Mm -hmm. Um, So in economics, the literature has shown that more attractive people have higher wages. The most attractive men and women earn wages that are about like 14 percent higher than the least attractive men and women. You know, psychology shows that um, 
more attractive preschoolers get paid more attention to by their preschool teachers. So, you know, there's many areas in which appearance seems to matter. Um, so what, what prompted our interest in this is, as I was saying, we were able to compare these students in online and traditional courses to try and see, you know, what is the mechanism behind which appearance seems to matter? Why do more attractive people earn higher wages? Is it that they're being discriminated, you know, um, in favor of them because they're attractive? Mm. Or is it, like we're mentioning, these other characteristics being more motivated, more driven, that's correlated with being attractive um, and also would be correlated with more success in the labor market? Did you find out if a professor's gender and or sexuality affects whether they're graded, whether they grade based on looks? Perhaps um, a straight man is more susceptible to this than, say, a straight woman. Um. So you're asking about the professor, or the, the, pro- student? the professor, the professor, right? Yes. In terms of giving these grades, yes. So, so the results there pretty much show that it's male and female professors oh. that that are doing this. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, just one or the other. Um, you know, but like you mentioned earlier, our initial set of results did show, you know, that the effect was concentrated among the female students. Do, do you think you've been guilty of this in in your life? Um, I think. Perhaps I've been guilty of this, but only in so much as I believe that we're all guilty of this. I believe that, you know, these are implicit biases, subconscious biases that we all have um, that we're not, you know, necessarily explicitly aware of. And so what do you do with a study like this? I mean, it it seems if if this is something that you've discovered, what can professors do to make grading more fair? Um, You know, I think there's a few... I think there's a few potential solutions. So one potential solution could be implementation of more blind grading. Um, So, for example, if it's a course that has multiple sections, maybe professors could grade in other sections tests. Um, Or you could have... so, for example, another professor would grade another another class. Another class, Got yes, it. absolutely, and that way you don't know necessarily know what those students look like. Um, or you could have some type of team grading, maybe where more than one professor grades um, the same exam for the same student to try and you know, I guess, decrease some of these biases. And what has the response been from the from academia to your study? Um, it's been very positive. You know, as I mentioned, there is some other literature out there and there's some other studies that show in economics um, that show similar biases um, in terms of discriminating on appearance for grades um, in some other institutions around the world. So ours wasn't the first to find that. You know, as I mentioned, though, what was exciting is that we were able um, we showed that in online courses, the effect of appearance disappeared. So students that were more attractive didn't receive higher grades in online courses. So I think what is exciting in academia is helping to start tease out the mechanism through which appearance might impact grades and other outcomes, you know, like wages in the labor market. Christina, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Christina Peters is an associate professor of economics at Metro State University in Denver. Up next, Colorado's most productive coal mine filed for bankruptcy this week. Is it a signal of things to come? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The owner of Colorado's most productive coal mine, West Elk Mine near Paonia, filed for bankruptcy this week. The news comes after one of the most challenging years for the industry in recent memory. And as CPR's energy reporter Grace Hood explains, there could be more fallout in 2016. 
West Elk Mine is one of Colorado's few bright spots for coal. It employs more than 300 workers, and jobs there remain stable as nearby mine Bowie No. 2 announced more layoffs in the fall of 2015. But there's new uncertainty in the North Fork Valley because the company Arch Coal filed for bankruptcy this week. Unless they were living under a pretty big rock, I don't think anybody's too surprised to hear about this. Mike Drake is the president of the Paonia Chamber of Commerce Board. He says the announcement didn't catch the town off guard. That's because Arch Coal had been flirting with bankruptcy since last summer. It comes after industry peer Alpha Natural Resources filed for Chapter 11. Coal hit a production high in 2008. And ever since then, it's marched steadily downward across the country. It's just a really tough situation to be in because there isn't a simple answer to how you replace coal mine jobs. In Colorado, coal jobs historically have paid about two-thirds more compared to the average wage across all industries. To be clear, Arch Coal says its mining operations will not be interrupted by the bankruptcy proceedings. The company did not respond to an interview request. The industry has been hurting for a while now. Ian Lang is an economics professor at the Colorado School of Mines. He says a few factors have created this reality. First, coal's customers, utilities and power plants, are switching to cheaper natural gas. It's not that coal can say, oh, well, we're just going to start selling into the Pacific market or into the European market because they're also kind of have much lower natural gas prices than they had in the past or than that they're expecting. So there's no other markets to sell the stuff in. Second, the price of wind and solar are getting cheaper. That makes them more attractive to utilities. Third, you have government policies like the Clean Power Plan nudging power plants away from coal to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. If there were still high natural gas prices and the renewables weren't coming in as much, coal could probably weather these environmental regulations. The, the problem is, is that it's at the same time as you know, its competitors are just really, really cheap. Experts like Lang don't expect coal to disappear completely anytime soon. Natural gas prices could go back up. That would be a boost for the coal industry because demand would increase. But right now the industry is in decline, and how it shrinks will matter to workers, local governments, even to taxpayers like you and me. You know, you've got to manage a decline like that. Mark Scolacci is a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder Law School. You can't expect the industry on its own, which is made up of many different players, to just decide that they're going to uh, pull back and that they're going to avoid putting themselves in difficult positions. The industry may already be in a difficult position when it comes to paying for land cleanup after coal is mined. U.S. regulators require companies to post bonds to cover these costs. But the largest coal companies have gravitated towards self-bonding, a legal practice that allows them to use their own balance sheets as collateral. Scalacci says that's a problem when a company declares bankruptcy taxpayers could end up on the hook. The thing that's most disturbing about what's happened is that the companies seem perfectly happy to uh, work out arrangements where they are essentially giving up some of their responsibility for reclamation. In its bankruptcy filings this week, Arch Coal asked for $75 million to be set aside for cleanup costs. That's less than the estimated $458 million that federal regulators said might be needed. The federal office that oversees mining says it will examine all aspects of bonding in the coal industry. It's a review that industry watchers like Scalacci fear will be too little too late. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. 
The Obama administration announced this morning that it will pause issuing new coal leases on federal lands until it completes a comprehensive review of its fee structure. It says it doesn't expect this to impact coal production in Colorado and across the West, however. You can read more about the announcement on our website, cprnews.org. You're tuned to Colorado Matters on CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Health promises to be a major headliner during the legislative session that began Wednesday. That includes everything from the cost of care in Colorado to hot-button social issues. For a preview, CPR health reporter John Daly spoke to Joanne Allen. John, there will be literally hundreds of bills this session, from education to transportation. Where are the health bills in all of this? Well, Joanne, like you say, I think uh, it'll be the big headliner for this session. And the thing that everybody's really talking about. And I think you can divide that up into a couple of categories. One would be those bills that involve contentious social issues, and the other are uh, measures that deal with health care costs and often into the hundreds of millions of dollars. So let's start with the social issues. What is worth watching? Well, for one, death with dignity. Essentially, it's a bill to allow doctors to provide drugs to let terminally ill people end their own lives. It failed last year, uh, but Denver Democrat Lois Court recently told Colorado Matters she intends to bring the bill back this year. It's not clear exactly what it'll look like, but we do know it'll prompt emotional debate. Allie Morgan is with the Colorado Health Institute. She was at last year's hearing and describes how charged it was. It was 11 hours long, and they alternated testimony from people who were there to support it and who were there against it, and it was just person after person after person, and it was gut-wrenching. End-of-life legislation, as they're calling it, saw strong opposition last year. I'm guessing those critics are still around. That's right. Some religious groups, among others, like the Colorado Catholic Conference and disability rights groups, oppose the effort. They see it as legalizing suicide. They're expected to be back this year. And another big social issue, I assume, is going to be abortion. That's a perennial issue, of course. We can expect another emotional fight over abortion and Planned Parenthood. We've had a lot of news about this in the past year regarding controversial videos and fetal tissue Also, the murder of three people at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs in November. You can look to Democrats to bring legislation focusing on security. That's what the group's Kathy Alderman told us recently. What form that takes, we're not sure, but we would just like to ensure that when people commit crimes against health care providers, simply because they're providing health care services, that they are, you know, punished to the full extent of the law. What can we expect from Republicans on this? Well, expect them to focus on efforts that mirror the national push to defund Planned Parenthood and restrict fetal tissue being used for research. Here's what the top Republican Senate president, Bill Cadman, says about it. What we really want to pursue is making sure that taxpayer money doesn't pay for abortion. That's the bottom line. Okay, John, let's move from the social issues to the other big headliner, health care cost. The big news this fall was the collapse of the cooperative Colorado Health Op. This session, we can still expect more fallout from that, right? Well, when the health op failed, it left 80,000 people scrambling for new insurance. And this all ties in with questions about the future of the state's online insurance marketplace, Connect for Health Colorado. Republicans, like Senator Kevin Lundberg, have criticized the exchange. You can keep your doctor 
you can keep your plan and the rates are going to go down. Everything's going the exact opposite direction. I would add this council to the board. Be ready to shut it down. Now, a lot of Democrats disagree and believe that the exchange and Obamacare have performed well in general, but expect that issue to potentially blow up. Of course, the other issue tied to Obamacare is the subsequent expansion of Medicaid. Yeah, that's right. Colorado is one of 30 states to expand the federal health care program for the poor under Obamacare. The state shares costs for the program in general, and in coming years, it'll need to pay a part of that expansion. It's now a quarter of the state's general fund budget, and that makes it increasingly hard to fund other priorities. Here's the Colorado Health Institute's Joe Hannell. We're at a point here where we can see a future that the state government is basically converted into a healthcare and education agency, and everything else kind of goes by the wayside. And all of this ties in with the big fight over the budget? Yeah, indeed. State revenues are growing, but legislators still need to find budget cuts. That's because when revenue growth exceeds the rate of inflation and population growth, tax refunds are triggered thanks to the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. CPR health reporter John Daly speaking to Joanne Allen. You can find out more on the big battle over the provider fee at CPRnews.org. Coming up next, Martin Luther King Jr. and his musical, Connection to Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Today, on Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, a fascinating bit of history that King heard one of his favorite hymns for the first time here in Denver. Ryan Warner explains. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. If I can wanted to find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Andrazzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956. What was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she was. And so he heard it at this church, 
And what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, his his environs. Yeah, Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, Let's hear some of her version. Okay. I can help somebody while I'm singing this song. You know my living. you spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the, the final part of that, it says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner as the master taught and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in, in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. 
say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 50 death threats a day. He said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Vern L. Howard is chair of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. He spoke with Ryan Warner. Denver's annual marade to honor Dr. King kicks off at 9 a.m. Monday morning at City Park. From the music in Dr. King's life to the people now, they include Denver civil rights activist Rosemary Freeney Harding. She passed away in 2004, but her memoir only came out last year. That's thanks to her daughter, Rachel Harding, an assistant professor of ethics studies at CU Denver. She strived to capture her mother's, quote, long, sweet flashes of brilliance. The book is called Remnants, a memoir of spirit, activism and mothering. Rachel Harding spoke with Ryan Warner last year. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. Your mother grew up in Chicago. She was a teacher, a social worker. And in the 60s, she and your father, Vincent Harding, were peace activists fighting for civil rights. I should say your father wrote speeches for Martin Luther King Jr. Your mother, you write, had a philosophy, quote, There is no scarcity. There is no shortage. No lack of love, of compassion, of joy in the world. There is more than enough. Only fear and greed make us think otherwise. That sense of abundance is in such stark contrast to the violent opposition to the civil rights movement. How did she maintain that optimism? Well, I think that a lot of it came, Ryan, from the people who raised her and the community that she um, was born into and cared for, that is to say, these Southerners, Southerners, African-Americans, who many of whom um, moved to the North during the Great Migration, but who came of age um, in a very difficult time uh, after slavery, but who found some way to dig into spiritual resources, cultural resources, many of which um, I'm convinced from my own work um, they brought with them from Africa in terms of understanding an ultimate connection that we all have to each other, that we all have to the environment, that we all have to spirit. And, so and that white has with black. That connection yes, all that they of share. us, all of us. That's right. And so, looking for ways to, to cultivate it. During a 2008 interview on Colorado Matters, uh, your father, uh, who was born in Harlem, spoke about joining the Mennonite Church and about his faith in nonviolent protest. He talked about the first time he saw Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
uh, who was in bed recuperating from a stab wound inflicted by a critic who is a black woman named Isola Curry. Uh, This was the first attempt on King's life. When we first saw King, he was in his bed, he was in his pajamas and his robe, and he had a great big grin on his face. I would love to to talk with you all. The second thing he said was, I just want to congratulate you for having made it through Mississippi to get to me. And that was the first thing that struck me about my brother. He had a marvelous sense of humor. He was always teasing people and making them think less heavily about themselves. Okay, so your father there, Vincent Harding, and he met your mother, uh, again, Rosemary Freeney Harding, uh, at a Mennonite church meeting. Uh, They were married, decided they wanted to work with King. They moved to Atlanta in, I think, 61 to represent the church, which did not have many African-American members at that point, right? right. They were among the first. Exactly. Yeah. What were those years of the civil rights movement like for your mother? Because Mm. you went over... A lot of her old journals, didn't you? Yes, yes. And um, we had some marvelous conversations in the last seven to ten years of her life where she essentially told me a lot of the story of her growing up and and how she became engaged in the movement. One of the um, primary responsibilities that my mother had uh, early in the time in Georgia was, as you just mentioned, setting up a kind of resource center slash community center slash social service agency called Mennonite House in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was the first interracial social service agency of its kind um, in the region. And essentially, it was a place where um, Mennonite young people and young people of other faiths were invited to come. Often, um, these were white young people who had just finished high school or college, and they came and would spend any place from a few weeks to a year living um, in this kind of communal setting and working in the African-American community, just as the um, freedom movement was kind of getting off of the ground um, and challenging many of the entrenched um, legal and and um, customary um, forms of segregation. That doesn't sound like a necessarily safe place to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. And in many ways, it wasn't just in terms of the kind of pushback that the country and particularly the the South at the time was giving to those who were trying to challenge uh, segregation. But at the same time, it's interesting. Mennonite House was in um, a historically black neighborhood. And African Americans, certainly at that point in history, were very open to white folks and to all kinds of people coming and participating and helping to build a different kind of nation. And who were a part of the Freedom Rides, for instance. Yes, yeah, some, yeah. that's right. There were all kinds of people. Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, um, when she was uh, badly beaten um, in, in a jail in Mississippi, was brought to Mennonite House to recover. There is a, a moment in the book. When your parents go to a wealthy white plantation owner's home in Mississippi, talk about the eye of the storm. Uh, Read her words, your mother's words about this uh, encounter. As we approached his place, I immediately thought of slavery days, 
the stark difference in the status of whites and blacks, the architecture and layout of the land, the fields of cotton and sorghum. The man was so rich that all the black people in the area worked for him, and all of them lived on his property. Because of his influence in the area, Vincent and I had been directed to try to talk to this man. About what? Mm. Um, When movement organizations would go into towns and cities of the South to begin major desegregation campaigns, they would often send a few people ahead of time to try to talk to um, kind of movers and shakers in both the black and white communities to get the city ready for what was coming. There's a moment where you, I think your parents wonder if this plantation owner will invite them to dinner yes. because the dinner hour is is nigh. He does not. That's right. Breaking bread together is a, an essential part of fellowship. That's true for human communities everywhere. But in the South, in both black and white communities, sitting down and eating is kind of a major place where you recognize each other's humanity. And so although the gentleman had, did not invite my parents into his house, they were actually sitting at a, in a gazebo in um, his one of his yards. For hours. For hours having this conversation. You're right. My mom said she could sense, you know, knowing the culture of the South, she could see in him kind of his struggling with whether or not to invite them to come in and have a meal. I would like to fast forward a bit if we could. So in the 70s, um, it seems a a bit as if life slows down for your parents. Um, By 1978, your mom gets her master's in women's studies. And in the 1980s, after moving to Denver, she gets a master's in social work at DU, Mm -hmm. education, a definite theme in her life, Mm -hmm. as is religion. Uh, That theme continues. So as we mentioned, uh, her active involvement in the Mennonite church, but she later embraces other traditions, other ideas. In 1990, she goes to India to study Tibetan Buddhism, Mm -hmm. and she meets the Dalai Lama. Right. Yes. Well, my mother, um, she felt that there was a kind of base line um, understanding of the interconnectedness that we all share as human beings and the compassion that we all have to have for each other that she got from her mother and father and from, as I said, those generations of African Americans who had been through so much trauma, but who had refused to become the worst of what was imposed on them. And she always looked for connections to that kind of understanding of who we are as human beings and how we're connected to each other. And she found that in Buddhism as well as in other traditions. Your mother uh, died some time ago. Your father more recently. Yes. A sense, perhaps, of being an orphan now. Mm. You know, as you were playing his words, um, I was just almost wanting to just stop a moment and and feel his presence. I, You know, I'm not quite yet fully at the place where I can just listen and because it's still tender. And and just briefly, has writing the book about your mother been healing? Very much so. You know, it was something that I began working on with her before she passed and then in earnest uh, when she went after she died. And that, I think, is what got me through um, the the grieving period of after my mother's passing. 
Rachel Harding, Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at CU Denver, speaking to Ryan Warner. Last year, Harding finished a memoir for her mother, Rosemarie. It's called Remnants, a Memoir of Spirit, Activism, and Mothering. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to Ryan Warner, Andrew Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, audio engineers Matt Hers and Michael Hughes, as well as our producers Stephanie Wolf, Michael DeYuana, Kareem Maddox, and Sam Brash. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook at CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.